Hello and welcome to The Complete Interpreter, the new podcast from The Interpreting Coach. Some of you know me by my real name, Sophie Llewellyn-Smith, a podcast that will look at how you can improve your interpreting skills, your mindset and your marketing. Holistic CPD is how I like to think about it, but maybe some people are not familiar with the term CPD, Continuing Professional Development. I'm really excited to be here because a podcast is a completely new enterprise for me. I've been learning the tech and now I'm recording this very first episode of The Complete Interpreter, which I hope you will enjoy. Please do leave me comments or get in touch with me for any feedback. Today, I thought that I would talk to you about my three biggest mistakes the three biggest mistakes I have made in my career as an interpreter. And I don't mean the three biggest bloopers that I've made in the booth, although some of them are quite memorable to me. I definitely remember some of the weirdest or craziest things that I have said. And the first big mistake, if you like, that I want to talk about is what happened when I started out as an interpreter. I was fresh out of university. I did the in-house training scheme at the European Commission, which at the time was a six-month course called uh, a stage, an internship. Every two months, there was an exam. And if you failed the exam, they would boot you out. So it was a little bit boot camp style, a bit brutal. I can remember one guy who did this training course who cut his hair because he was told he had to look professional. So he cut his beautiful flowing locks that were longer than shoulder length um, and then failed the test a few weeks later and was out on his ear looking for a new career. So it was quite brutal. And at the time that I did it, when you took the final test after six months on this training course, if you passed, the European Commission, uh, the interpreting directorate, which was called SCIC, would offer you a two-year contract as a temporary agent. I was fortunate enough to pass that exam and to be offered the two-year contract, and that's how I started my career as an interpreter. But in that final test, the six-month test, apart from testing you in all your passive languages, so I had to do uh, a simultaneous from French into English, from German into English, and from Greek into English, they also made you do a retour test, even though I was not going to be interpreting into another language. I would only ever interpret into English in the English unit. I still had to do a retour test. Now, you could choose what language to do it in. (laughs) Heaven forfend that I should have had to do a retour test into Greek, for example. I can't imagine how that would come out, or into German. Wow. Just think of all the declensions I could have got wrong in the space of five minutes. So I chose to do that into French. And as it happens, my mother is French and I grew up speaking French. So I grew up bilingual and I actually went to a French school, not an English school. We then studied in the UK for various reasons, which I won't go into. So I finished my secondary school education in London at the French Lycée and then I went off to university in the UK and studied languages. In that time my English became very dominant compared to my French so they had been pretty much equal. I took a French baccalaureate 
Um, all my subjects were studied through the medium of French. It wasn't a bilingual school. And, and my French and English were both very good, fairly equal, except in the sense that there were some contexts where my French came very much more comfortably because of school and because of what I was studying at school and other contexts where English was dominant. For example, because I lived in the UK and I watched television in the UK. And so I used to watch English TV. Popular culture, I could talk about far more comfortably in English than in French. But science, for example, or economics or philosophy, I was much more comfortable in French. Off I went to university. In the UK, all my friends there, or pretty much all, were British or English-speaking, and my English became very dominant. So when I applied for this training course at the European Commission, I applied for the English unit, which seemed logical after three years of higher education. And I, I'm not sure it's recognised or people think about how much their use of language changes at university. I don't know if you've ever thought about that yourselves. The discipline of reading books and journal articles that are written in a particular style and then writing essays in that style changes your use of vocabulary and your understanding and mastery of register. Which is why, by the end of those three years, my English was very different from my French. And it was um, very much stronger with a wider vocabulary and a better use of register. Therefore, I applied for the English unit. But when I did my retour test at the end of the six months, I, of course, chose to do my retour test into French. And at the time, the head of the French unit, who was pretty tough, as I recall, uh, told me that my retour was good. And in an offhand kind of way at the end of the test, he said, and at some point you should consider working in the French booth. But nobody after that ever said any more about that. My head of unit in the English unit never mentioned it again. The head of the French unit never came up to me and said, so when are you adding your French retour? Or when are you going to work on doing a double booth? And I think the key point that I want to make is that I was not aware at the time of the implications that that would have for me. Now, perhaps it's easy to say, oh, you should look ahead and think about the implications of what you're doing and the decisions you're making. And I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that we should second guess every single decision we make all the time, because then maybe we'd never take any decisions. But I guess what I'm saying is because I went into quite a comfortable situation of uh, a two-year contract and I was very young and I didn't know anything about the wider interpreting world or career opportunities and nobody talked to me about it, but I also didn't go and find out because I didn't know that I needed to really, I cut off some avenues for myself or I made life very much more difficult for myself. By which I mean, if I had worked on that French retour at the time, it would have been 20 times easier <laughs> to do than when I actually got round to trying to add a French retour. My French was still much more active. I was living in a French-speaking country. 
Also, I was young and I was getting egg on my face and struggling through being a, a beginner interpreter anyway. So I think the trauma of adding a retour uh, wouldn't have been much different from that. And I was used to getting the feedback and being told that I needed to express myself differently, etc. Whereas as it happened, I then worked in the English unit for years, most of that time thinking to myself, oh, I'm bilingual and I grew up speaking French, but I never do that anymore. I never speak French anymore. Um, and, and my French is becoming very, very passive. But years later, when I decided to try to add a French retour, it was so much more difficult. So to cut that relatively long story short, I think what I'm trying to say is, if you're starting out as an interpreter, there are opportunities out there that you may not even know about. And you may be making life harder for yourself down the road in not taking some of those opportunities. And the advice I would have, I think, to, to anybody in that position is join a professional association. Attend global CPD events, uh, continuing professional development. For example, TERP Summit, the summit that I run once a year, is a place where there are interpreters from all over the world and where we've learned about other markets and also other opportunities. This year I had people there talking about church interpreting, court interpreting, uh, medical interpreting, people from the US, from Central America. And that can be a really good insight into what happens elsewhere or even what happens on your own market. And so the last bit of advice is try and pick a few blogs and a few social media accounts that you want to follow that tell you about the world that's out there and the opportunities that are out there. And then you can avoid uh, shutting doors that will still be there for you to open a few years down the line, but it just may take more effort or more time to open those doors if you haven't done something preemptive or kept up existing skills. Now, I could have done something. It didn't have to be all or nothing. I didn't have to add my French retour immediately at the age of 22, but I could have done something to keep my French simmering away in the background a little bit more if I had known, for example, that when I turned freelance, having a retour would be so essential. I didn't know that. I was 22. I did my two years as a, as a staff member on a temporary contract. I hadn't really looked beyond that. And when I turned freelance, I thought, oh, well, so now I'm just going to keep working for the European communities because with my language combination, what else am I going to do? So that's mistake number one. Now, mistake number two, uh, and this is a little bit similar. It's also about closing off opportunities, but not based on ignorance, more based on staying in my comfort zone when I first went freelance. It follows on quite well from the previous point when I was saying, um, that when I went freelance, all I, all I did really was continue working for the European institutions. 
in those days, they offered me a lot of work. I had a an exotic language in my combination, having Greek. And I also had three languages in my combination, which in the English unit was enough. It was pretty good to have three languages, three Cs. So I was able to make a living as a freelance interpreter, just traveling backwards and forwards between the UK, which was by then my domicile, and Brussels. And it didn't really occur to me that it would be a good idea to look beyond those horizons and to keep developing and expanding as an interpreter. I think the furthest I went with that was to go off and take a test, because in those days you had to take a separate test, to work for the European Parliament. But I had neither the time nor, I suppose, particularly the inclination to go looking for lots of other clients for the sake of it, because I was thinking to myself, well, I make a, I make a decent living, I know what I'm doing with these meetings and with these employers, and I'm just going to stick to that. But again, I think the, the downside with that is that if there is some kind of crisis with, with demand, uh, if your main employers recruit very much less for whatever reason, if there's a pandemic, <laughs> so you stop working for those employers, then you don't really have anything to fall back on. And I guess what I'm saying is diversifying is a good way of not having all your eggs in one basket. But you can diversify by taking small steps and expand gradually. It's not a bad thing, though, to think about that early and to start doing things that will help you keep your options open. Some tips for that, I think trying to find a mentor who works on the same market as you is a really nice idea. And some AIC regions have schemes where you can find a mentor and work with a mentor. For example, the Belgian region often offers that. The German region also has a mentorship scheme. So either formally through one of those associations or informally by approaching someone who is perhaps a member of AIC or a member of another professional association that you are hoping to join or have joined, you can then talk to somebody else about the realities on your market and what they think would be a good idea strategically. I would say apart from looking for a mentor, be open to new opportunities. Sometimes colleagues will offer you work and it may not be a meeting that initially particularly excites you, or it may not be the best paid meeting. It might even be, who knows, a volunteer opportunity. Or it might be something a bit different, um, like a, a translation or a, or a voiceover opportunity, or it might be some teaching. Before rejecting anything out of hand, just be open to opportunities which can lead to something else and if nothing else, which can help you network. My next tip there is also networking. As Maisie Greenwood was saying in a talk that she gave at the 2023 TERP Summit about diversification and specialization, interpreting is a bit strange because we don't really know what work is out there until we are approached by an agency or by um, a, an organization to do that work. And that's quite different from some other professions. 
And the only way to find out about the work, really, is by building a network of contacts and developing a reputation as somebody very skillful and also reliable. So networking, I think, is a really important thing to do, much more so than when I started out. You'll have understood from what I said that I got into interpreting when I was very young and interpreted for the same organization for years and years and years. And that was it. I didn't have to network with anybody. Of course, I was interested in my own professional reputation within the booth. But to get the work, I didn't have to go out there and hustle in any way. Or I didn't have to make contacts and rely on word of mouth. So networking, uh, learning about acquiring, finding and acquiring direct clients is a good thing to do. There are talks and courses out there now. At some of the online summits, for example, there have been some really interesting talks about how to find direct clients. And as I said earlier, remember that you can expand gradually. My final mistake. Now, you may or may not be able to relate to this. It may depend quite a lot on your personality. My final mistake is that I haven't always been consistent with keeping up my own skills and with practicing and keeping up my languages. And what I have learnt over the years is that maintaining your languages and your skills as an interpreter is a sort of basic hygiene. It's a bit like doing the housework so that your house doesn't become a tip and unmanageably dirty and awful and then it's too intimidating and too frightening you don't feel like cleaning it <laughs> sounds a little bit like the voice of bitter experience <laughs> housework is absolutely not my favorite thing to do or I'll give you another example I have learned in the past let's say 10 years that basic computer hygiene is actually incredibly important but nobody teaches you that. I think it's something that should be taught at school. Not just how to use the computer so that it does what you want. Not just uh, my children are learning how to use Excel, for example, or how to use Google most efficiently. And they have lots of tricks that I don't even know about how to duplicate tabs. Or they're brilliant at using the iPhone and changing the settings. Okay, so that's useful and I think that should be taught at school. But I also think that basic computer hygiene should be taught at school, that you should file your documents, but also how often you should do a virus check, how often you should update certain bits of software. So that is a kind of basic hygiene for using a computer that I think should be taught. And it took me probably far longer than it should <laughs> to understand that Maintaining your languages is not optional, or maintaining your skills is not optional, especially if you're not working full-time. Now, if you're a staff member and you're working pretty much full-time doing simultaneous every day, okay, you don't need to maintain your interpreting skills per se. Probably the only thing you need to do is read the news and make sure you're up to date on technical vocabulary. That's a whole different thing. If you're a freelance interpreter who does not interpret full time and who maybe does some other things or just doesn't work um, 20 working days out of 30 
And in particular, if you don't always use all of your skills, for example, if you haven't used your consecutive for a while, or you don't use your retour very often, then those are things that you just need to build into your timetable. It's just a question of basic um, hygiene, as it were, to keep up your professional skills. You all know that having a language is very much a use it or lose it kind of thing. And that if you don't keep practicing and keep on top of vocabulary, it gradually fades away and it, it doesn't disappear altogether, but it goes into your long-term memory as opposed to being immediately accessible. That makes your reflexes less sharp when you're interpreting. So, of course, I was always aware that I should work a bit on my Greek and on my German. I used to read the papers. But it's only in recent years that I've come to really appreciate the value of consistency, of accountability, and of scheduling these things into your own timetable. Because it's all very well to have a vague intention of, oh, I must keep up my Greek. That is very different from actually setting an intention and following through with it consistently. What do I mean by consistently? I mean with some regularity that you take a decision about the length of time that you can devote to this, you schedule it in your diary and you do it as opposed to going, I'll do it unless I have an assignment that day or I'll do it unless something else more important comes up that day. I've been totally guilty of doing that both with uh, keeping up my languages or practicing a particular interpreting skill or whatever other part of my life I'm trying to procrastinate, like doing my tax return, which is in fact what I'm procrastinating doing now. However, let's not talk about that. So to cut a long story short and come on to the tips for this, I would say that you need to maintain and preferably, of course, improve your skills you can also be working on adding another C language, language, or you could be working on adding a retour, turning a C language into a B. In order to do this, you have to decide on your goal, have an idea of your time frame, but above all, you need to schedule the time. Look at your calendar, decide where you can see windows of time, and if you can't see windows, you're, you need to create them by shuffling things around or by dropping something else. And then if you're the kind of person that does well with accountability or with a buddy, create accountability in some form. Some ways that you can do that would be to join a practice group and there are more and more practice groups popping up. The ones that I'm familiar with are extremely well run. They're very organized. Um, the atmosphere is really nice. People are very constructive in the feedback that they give each other. So it's a really good way to maintain your skills. Uh, in Brussels, there's the IBPG. In Paris, there's PIPS, the Paris Interpreters Practice Group. In the Americas, there's Amerivox. There's also um, a Canadian group. And there are some practice groups online. You can find Facebook groups as well that, that uh, organize practice sessions. So that, I think, is really important to either join a practice group or find a practice partner. And the other thing that you can do for accountability, if you like, is to sign up for some co-working sessions. 
Now that might be generic co-working. There are websites that you can join now where you can do co-working sessions with people from another sector, just with the people who happen to turn up on that day and at that time. Or you can join some interpreting co-working sessions. And in fact, I will be running co-working sessions on Fridays at 4 p.m. UK time. And the idea of a co-working session, in case you didn't know, is that you bring along the thing that you want to focus on on that day. So it's not uh, a lesson, it's not a class, it's not anybody else telling you what to do. It's you making a commitment to yourself, choosing your practice material or your whatever it is you need to do, the document you need to write or your taxes, your accounts that you need to do. You choose and then you show up to the practice group and at the beginning, uh, the person leading the group will probably ask everybody to say in the chat what it is that they're working on. And then at the end, everybody will check in uh, so that you can just briefly say how far you've got with your task. And that can be a really good way to make yourself accountable. Make sure that you actually turn up and do the work that you said that you were going to do and devote that time to yourself and to your skills. Because I think being a well-rounded interpreter and interpreting business owner is not just about getting the assignments and making the money. It's also about maintaining your skills and um, being well-rounded with your skills, but also in your mind, staying healthy, keeping a good balance. And those are things that I'll be talking about in future podcasts. But I can see that my time is nearly up today. So to conclude, I just want to reiterate that the, the purpose of today's podcast is not so much to say, to look back with regret and say, oh no, I got it all wrong in my interpreting career. I think it's more that if I had my time over, I would do certain things differently. And I hope I've been ex able to explain the reasons clearly enough and to give you some tips for how you can avoid making the same mistakes. I'd love it if you would leave a comment and let me know what you thought of my three mistakes, whether those are things that you can relate to or, or whether you have made um, mistakes or miscalculations that you have learned from. And also, I'd really love it if you would tell me what you would like me to talk about next on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, the very first episode of The Complete Interpreter. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye.